welcome to the latest episode of EG Like Sunday Morning, which may be slightly more chaotic even than usual due to some technological difficulties this end. But you don't want to hear about that. You want to hear the expert musings of my two wonderful colleagues, Alex Daniel and Graham Schoen. What these two don't know about offices is not worth knowing. Uh, but before we get to all that, I do know that we, we share an interest at the moment uh, in the ongoing European Championships. So uh, how are you both enjoying the tournament so far? I've been enjoying it a lot. I mean, I am wholly unimpressed with England's lack of imagination. I think I'm going to have to convert to being a Wales fan at this point. But um, it depends how it goes on uh, when, when we eventually play Germany, of all people. I know. Uh, now, I, I don't know whether, I mean, I have a lifetime of pain uh, as a result of England-Germany encounters in the past. Uh, I, I don't know how, how much it's affected you. I mean, Alex, how old were you in, in 1996? How old was I in 2001 when we eaten 5-1 is more to the point. <laughs> yes. My first experience of England-Germany. I've had it good. I've had it good. 2010 okay. was hard, but apart from that. <laughs> That's good. That's a note of optimism, at least. Uh, but if you do, if you do, um, if you do switch allegiances to Wales, I, I, I fear we, we, I might be outnumbered. Isn't that right, Graham? Yeah, I was going to say welcome to the club, Alex. Um, <laughs> uh, secret Wales fans with boring English accents. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine's boring anyway. Yours is a bit better. Um, yeah, I, I've been enjoying it. It's quite nice to hear an organic uh, fan atmosphere. To be honest, I think that's the main point of enjoyment I think for me so far, as well as Wales obviously being good. Um, we're all set for a, an England Wales semi final. Uh, yeah. If results go go right, so that could be that could be yeah, quite I'm incredible. Not, could I cause a lot the of country coming to a standstill for that. Yeah, absolutely. Cause a lot of arguments, I think, maybe in the EG team uh, and <laughs> certainly in my house. <laughs> so hopefully that does happen. Okay, so uh, sadly we we can't talk about this for the whole uh, twenty minutes. But how's this for a link? It strikes me uh, that the England team thus far are very much flying the flag for flexible working, having only really turned up on the pitch for about 20% of their game time so far. Uh, so while that seems to be working out thus far, uh, we'll see what happens against Germany. What is your sense, um, your professional sense of the wider working world uh, when it comes to the whole ongoing remote working back in the office debate? I guess we'll jump in. I think um, things are definitely moving towards um, a kind of hybrid working future. I think we've known this for quite some time. I think the interesting thing about it still is that people can't seem to agree what hybrid working is, mm. even though they all say they're going to do it. So we have, for example, I think now late last week, Deloitte said um, they would allow their all their 20,000 UK workforce uh, the right to work from home indefinitely um, if they wanted to. I'm sure that will come with kind of strings attached and some people will have to be in the office quite a lot, some people less so, but that is sort of one end of the spectrum. And then you have other corporates saying we're going to do hybrid working for X amount of time and then maybe at the start of 2022, start of 2023 maybe, we're going to try and transition to back to normal. Um, I think there is a very broad uh, spectrum of views on what hybrid working is, basically. And there seems to be quite a few people who are chasing headlines, really, in their, their announcements on, on what they're planning to do. 
Well, I think it'd be fair to say Deloitte is one of those people. I think <laughs> they were, I think, and don't quote me on this, but I think they were the last of the big four mm. to announce their sort of flexible working sort of future of the office policy. Um, they've let EY, PwC and K- KPMG make their decisions on sort of three days in the office, two days in the office before coming out with whenever you want to be at home, you can be at home indefinitely, which is definitely the most grabby of the four. And they've sort of, I reckon um, it's a little bit of a kind of, I think uh, one of our um, interviewees this week hailed it as a Jedi move uh, <laughs> in the magazine. So uh, readers can look forward to that if you haven't haven't read it already. It seems a lot of the talk is about the, you know, the, the war for the next generation of talent and which which approach might win the day. It does seem to be the case. I mean, again, I think readers can make it, make up their minds on this, but I'm sure most people know where they'd rather work. A company that sort of forces you to be in the office a certain amount of time or a company that lets you do basically whatever you want and trusts you all the way. I find it interesting that quite a lot of them have have, have come out with um, kind of declarations almost on it, as if it might not shift once we get into 2022 and 23. I kind of I've said a couple of times, um, either in articles or possibly on social media, that it, it almost feels like a period of experimentation is about mm. to happen, and people are trying to find the best solution for them at the moment. Um, there's a bit of a pervading consensus that younger people might be tired of, of working from home. Uh, I believe there's some JLL research on on citing in the mag uh, not so long ago, which did suggest that it's kind of higher percentage of respondents to a survey of a certain demographic that they would, mm. they kind of go fatigued with it. And therefore, does that inform then a certain um, subsector of, of occupiers to, to start thinking about how they how they make their offices work better? Um, for attracting talent and that kind of thing. There's, inter- there's an interesting line from um, the Slaughter and May piece, um, which you uh, published in the magazine this weekend, Alex, which uh, people should um, should check out definitely. It does actually say uh, nobody's offices are really equipped um, for hybrid working, um, which I, I think is quite an, an interesting kind of point to make in that people are in situ in spaces that perhaps worked before the pandemic, and they have to figure out exactly what they do moving forward um, and how they either adapt their, their existing space to to be fit, I suppose, for for flexible working, or whether they have to have to move, you know, altogether. All and I think with some of the deals that are coming through at the moment um, for significant volumes of space in central London, I think certain businesses are feeling like they actually need to to take the plan, just take the move. Uh, and just kind of curate their their space for as well they can to try and navigate through the next five years. But I still think there'll be a bit of experimentation within that. There'll have to be flexibility possibly built built into into leases um, mm. in order to to help that that kind of um, transition really to the the future of work along. Um, but again, like it, it'll be interesting to see what happens with um, Deloitte and, and some of these firms in perpetuity and whether they think in in a couple of years they might think actually we need to do this with our space because at the moment i'm, I'm getting a, a, a bit of an impression that a lot of the a lot of the announcements a lot of the moves are kind of led almost by some kind of gut instinct or some feeling from 
senior leadership, perhaps. I could be wrong within that. And they actually have measurable data on how mm. their how their people perform in the office, out of the office, how it affects productivity, all this kind of thing. But obviously, we, we haven't got a, a ton of data on what happens, you know, like during a pandemic or during a period of enforced remote working as against what happened before, coupled with uh, a bit of a, a lag in economic activity. So I kind of feel like we're going to need that to come forward as well in terms of how employees and how businesses can be productive before we actually figure out the, the future of all this. And like just on a, a practical level, I mean, I know uh, Graham. There have been times when when you've you know you you've relocated in in our office due to the noise of people on phones and what have you. <laughs> but imagine when half the office is in, half the office is at home, and everyone's having Teams meetings and and <laughs> you know in the office with people who are not in the office. Uh, you know, there are there's lots of uh, logistical. Uh, factors that have to be sort of borne in mind doesn't it doesn't that yeah it, it's it, that's a question of, of practicality about how much how much space you you dedicate to your, your kind of your banks of desks um mm. and how much you basically kind of chop out for for meetings for you know i, I guess the old word was cellularization so just just individual rooms booths where people can work um specific you know offices corner offices all this kind of thing um I suppose if you if you did have that scenario where people are, are just sat meeting with people who, with colleagues who aren't in the office and it just becomes farcical, I mean you try at least some form of uh, planning so that you can actually have the right people in at the right times. I think that's what organisations are going to have to do. They have to mm. have to figure out their space usage uh, and accurately timetable when certain people need to be in uh, and try and get people, I guess, um, to to be in the office collaborating as, as much as they think is reasonable. Mm. And, be, and obviously, the large firms like Deloitte will be an interesting case study in a couple of years as to, as to how that actually works. Are the right people actually talking to each other, bumping into each other, uh, you know, collaborating, liaising as, as they might otherwise have to do? Or can all of this be done remotely? And I think certain people think this can all be done, all the necessary things can be done remotely. And it's the immeasurable Mm. things those uh those little kind of yeah like i say the, the the immeasurable aspects really of office work that are kind of that they'll either be lost and doesn't matter we'll forget them or they're lost and people think i we really need that back mm. <laughs> we, we need this we need this to happen at least we need to create the circumstances in which these things can then happen again in future um rather than just relying on it uh, occurring remotely and meanwhile, Alex is the one member of our team that um, hasn't been in our office outside of the pandemic, but has perhaps spent more time than anyone in the office over the last few weeks and months. So, I mean, Alex, are you actually looking forward to spending some time in that office when we can all be with you at the same time? Well, I think that that's the key point, isn't it? I mean, it's really, I mean, nothing against our offices, but it's really not ideal being in the office Um on your own on kind of mm. sort of sat with no one within a 20 meter radius of you on kind of a really big floor plate in the city um it it is useful to be able to sort of go in for external meetings have a base near where you're meeting people etc cetera, etc cetera. but the benefits of the office are as we know sort of running into people learning from people that you sat next to i know that i mean having started this job at EG remotely at the start of this year um, with 
no experience or background in property specifically, um, it's probably been a lot harder actually to pick things up um, just from colleagues uh, because of the fact that you don't just have someone sat next to you that you can mm. ask a question of. Um, I've never experienced that before. I'm sure there are a hell of a lot of people um, either listening or just around the country that have experienced exactly the same thing. Um, those are definitely the definitely the immeasurables um, and I suppose like Graham says there will be an interesting case study I suppose it all depends on um, how much they sort of do actually sort of informally ask people to be in the office I mean if you're a manager and you have to teach someone something and your overall company has um, an overriding policy that no one has to come into the office then can you force someone to come in for a training session I suppose you can but I imagine there are going to be sort of problems just logistically with that sort of thing over the next couple of years if you have a kind of broad ranging sweeping policy. Well you've you, uh, you've done a fine job uh, you know pick, picking up uh, things as you've gone along whilst whilst working uh, remotely Alex so um, and I know in the last few weeks uh, since you were last on EG like Sunday morning you, you've been busy uh, you know, reporting on on various deals. Uh, I think you were quite positive about um, the market last time last time you we spoke. Uh, so, how's how are things been shaping up in the last few weeks? Uh, things been shaping up well, particularly on the leasing side. Things are picking up a lot. Um, I suppose um, what I would say is it's been quite targeted. So, I mean, earlier this month we saw a real of activity around uh, the Farringdon area, for example, that was among a couple of tech companies. So we saw Snapchat, Depop um, taking new headquarters and then TikTok looking for another 100,000 square foot of office space. This is, bear in mind, after a big leasing deal for um, 80 to 90,000 square foot in the same area, which completed in March. Um, I guess what we can draw from this is that certain types of occupier are really back on the horse when it comes to looking for new offices and uh, requirements that perhaps were shelved at the start of the pandemic are now coming back out for certain types of occupier. So we've got these kind of high growth tech companies, Snapchats, TikToks, which are really undergoing this kind of rock and roll style expansion globally and of course in the UK and sort of need the office space to keep up. Then you've got the financial services sector, which has made up a lot of London take up as well. That's kind of midway asset managers, private equity companies, that sort of thing. They've typically done quite well during the pandemic and are often more nimble than your regular corporates. Um, and then you've got a whole bunch of uh, law firms who are also still looking for space. Um, there have been some high profile deals in this um, this area. Latham and Watkins is a good uh -huh. example at the start of the year. Um, but there are still a lot of law firms who are looking. Um, that in particular, I think, is driven by coincidence. There are lots of upcoming lease events for these companies um, in the next couple of years. They know that they will still need a lot of office space. Um, they know they'll need good client facing facilities, which was another thing that came out of that slaughter of May interview, which we mentioned earlier. Um, and they've also all done quite well during the pandemic. Mm. Um, and therefore, they've got the money to pay the rent. It's an interesting, um, I guess, uh, vote of confidence, really, for a lot of those firms um, in the future of London, to be honest. And these are not insignificant volumes of, of 
square footage that they're that they're acquiring there's obviously a feeling i suppose within those organizations that there's not only a, a future of the office but they do want to be located in possibly one of the uh, the more traditional kind of tech blustery type areas in um in farringdon clark and well are kind of to getting towards the the city fringe area and for those law firms as well i think that the requirements coming back I think it's probably just um, indicative, um, really, of the fact that there's a, a hell of a lot of deal making that might need to be done. Um, I think over the the intervening period, while a lot of these firms across the sector, across the um, the spectrum of sectors, do figure out what they're going to need to to do moving forward. Um, obviously, last year was an unbelievable nadir in terms of uh, the actual amount of space that they got they got taken up and. Um, there's kind of various conclusions from from parties uh, as to what that actually meant. Um, what will be interesting, I think, um, to really monitor over the the coming kind of quarterly periods is what a lot of that deal making actually represents in terms of what the company is doing. Are they expanding their office space, and are they kind of expanding specifically in London? Because they think the talent will will be able to to be retained here, and this is where kind of people want to be. Um, or does it um, actually represent a, a little bit of a, a cutting down of of their office space pending uh, the expectation I suppose that um, more people will work more hours uh, remotely than they did uh, prior to the pandemic so I think there'll be a lot of headline grabbing kind of numbers um, around some of these deals that, that are likely to happen it'll just be interesting with each one of them to actually reflect on what it means for those companies uh, what what kind of vote of confidence they're they're putting in office space um as against the the kind of deloitte uh it's unfair to badge it as a deloitte model of just you know work from anywhere because a lot of companies are taking up that option um but i think that'll be interesting going forward but i expect significantly better numbers um on the leasing side anyway for, for london in the uh, in the upcoming quarterly uh, quarterly reviews yeah i imagine uh, you'll be right on that um so any other big stories to tell us about this week alex um, the one that springs to mind is the Crown Estates. Um, they had their annual results, which is always kind of hotly anticipated. Um, it, it's obviously pretty well known what the Crown Estate is, but I think it bears um, repeating just to emphasize sort of how much of a part this is of kind of the UK's um, sort of landscape, I guess. They manage the monarchy's property portfolio um, that includes loads of shops and offices in central London huge swathes of the countryside, um, obviously all the royal palaces, and then they've also got a really big um, estate of um, the seabeds around the British Isles. Um, and then it returned its profits to the treasury, and gives the queen some of it to keep, um, to, for the upkeep of her palaces. And they have seen a billion quid wipes off the value of uh, their overall um, sort of land real estate portfolio in the past year. Um, that's down to um, devaluation of retail assets, um, basically, um, to, to, um, to boil it down to a very simple point. And I guess the reason I say the, the land retail assets, uh, real estate assets, is because the seabed has been incredibly profitable for the Crown Estate over the last year. Um, wow. Their marine business, um, <laughs> Dan Labad's, the chief executive said the marine business will definitely play a much bigger part in their um, kind of profit generation in the future. Um, they're building a lot of wind farms, um, mm. basically. 
offshore, um, whether that be floating or whether it be um, kind of, how you say it, kind of lodged in the seabed, the wind <laughs> turbine. Um, but um, yeah, this year alone, the, the marine business um, doubled its uh, value, um, a 2.1 billion increase in value after they identified a, a load of sites for new wind farms. Um, and I guess it's interesting because it sort of positions the Crown Estates to look like a very different business to in say the next decade to the one that it did maybe at the turn of the millennium where it was pretty much this kind of standard property company that played this role for the monarchy and that was what was special about it. Now it's um, a massive landowner whose land is not making nearly as much money as it used to Obviously, that's partly driven by the pandemic, but they have a lot of retail assets and no one knows what's going to happen to that. Um, whereas their seabed business is going to start playing a much more important part in how it makes its money in the future. So I guess um, the Queen is getting a lot more money from the bottom of the ocean. The ocean it's floor. <laughs> yeah, it's better down where it's wetter, under the sea. Uh, I'm yeah. sure they're singing uh, in, up in the Crown Estate. Um, so uh, that uh, brings us uh, to the quiz of the week. Um, I don't know which of you would like to, to face the challenge this week. I thought Alex volunteered before think, the podcast began. Okay, so, so I think we'll, it should be him. It's very uh, magnanimous of you to nominate. <laughs> okay, I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm busy doing research on the seabed and the ocean floor. <laughs> Where to invest. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, yeah, a few weeks ago, Sam did the impossible and scored five out of five. So that is the target you're aiming for, Alex. Um, so it's a, it's hopefully an easy one to start. I suspect this is one of your stories and it's, it's just to test your pronunciation more than anything. So question one, which German asset manager has bought a Hoban office for 118 billion? That would be Decker Immobilien. Expertly put. Well done. One out of one. Uh, question two. What new enterprise is being pursued by CBRE Consultant Executive Director Simon Barrowcliffe? This is really oh, a test God. of how, how much Alex speaks to his colleagues, as, as the wow. quiz of the week so often is. Oh, do you know what? I know what it is. It was right at the start of the week, wasn't it? And it's a film studio. It is. It's a film studio in Buckinghamshire, which is a very exciting uh, prospect. Um, question three. Which public body is losing its chief of staff? Uh, Homes England. Oh, I could not wow. tell you any more about that story, but it is Homes oh. England. Well, you, you told me the one thing I asked, so that's all we can ask for. Uh, Amy Casterden is moving on to take up a new position at ES Global. OK, so question four, our missing words question. And it, this week it comes from Tim's leader. Uh, can you fill in the blank? A flexible approach to remote working is too often seen as blank. A flexible approach to remote working is too often seen as blank. Not to put any pressure on you, Alex, but I know the answer to this. <laughs> Graham's all pleased to buzz in. <laughs> Ready oh. for the steal. Flexible approach. To, it's, it's, I mean, this is a guess. Mm -hmm. What would a flexible approach to remote working too often be seen as? Um, uh, oh, I don't know. I'm going to have to pass. Okay, passing it over to Graham. I think the answer is anti-office. It is anti-office. Uh, Tim does go on to stress that it is not uh, anti-office and that it is a catalyst that can transform our workspaces for the better. I can't Pop believe I didn't guess that. 
podcast, oh, so podcast listeners won't be able to see like how gutted Alex looks. <laughs> Graham, Graham is a bit of a missing words question expert. He, he When he faced the quiz, he managed to work it out from nothing, just based on having not read the piece. He just worked it out from first principles, which was quite a remarkable feat. So you can still get four out of five, which is still a fantastic score. So question five is, of course, the diary question. Too many what near your house is bad for property values, according to the diary page this week. Too many what near your house is not bad for beds, is it? <laughs> <laughs> the, the trouble is, I don't know the answer, but it could be absolutely anything. <laughs> Wind turbines, pylons. <laughs> there are many things. Warehouses. Yeah, prisons, um, all kinds of things, but... There's one specific one that's on the page this week. I'm afraid I don't know the answer, but I'm going to guess warehouses. It, it's actually pubs. Too what? many pubs. Yeah. So what, what are your thoughts on that, the, the pair of you? Uh, I, I don't think I'm actually that surprised because somebody's going to have done a, a study about like the noise from the, the people's spilling out onto the streets and things like that. Causing what, what, a the, what the study looked at was the number of pubs in different local authority areas and how they were reflected in average price value. But the, the one place that does, of course, book the trend is London, which has the most pubs and the highest property values. So there you go. So, Alex, I believe you live in London, so you're all right. Excellent. <laughs> so three out of five, still a fantastic uh, score. So uh, before we go, uh, I'll just ask you for your predictions for uh, the big games. So Graham, Wales, Denmark, what's going to happen? I got, I got to go for a Wales win. I think it'd be two one after extra time. Two one. Oh, very specific. You get good good odds on that. Uh, Alex, what's it going to be? England, Germany. Give me good news. I really want to say we will absolutely do them, but I just don't think we will. I How think good imagine another 5-1. Imagine that. Another 5-1 will be fantastic. Sadly, my five shots is retired. Um, I reckon it will go to extra time. Um, I think it could be 1-1 after extra time, and then we'll inevitably lose on penalties. I think, I think we're better at penalties now. I think we have a better crop of penalties acres than we, than we once did based on watching English players taking penalties in Champions League games over the recent years. But I might be deluding myself, but uh, who knows? Back, uh, certainly back to the English player, like the penalties at the tournament are awful. Everyone <laughs> missed. <laughs> yeah, if, yeah only, I, if only someone would give Harry Kane a penalty, he might finally score. Amen. Uh, but, yeah. Okay, thanks to you both. Uh, you have been listening to EG Like Sunday Morning.